People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. That's why I embraced him, to let him know as Kevin's mother, you took my son's life unjustly in front of me. Today we're going to try to reconcile an aspect of the criminal justice system that is often overlooked, the mistreatment of women of color. We will be recounting the stories of several women who have suffered injustice from the hands of law enforcement. A critical look at how police treat African-American women and oftentimes simply ignore them. An in-depth series of episodes that will reveal a deeply flawed system through the stories of the women we're calling hidden victims. All this coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. So the first case that we're going to discuss started with a really unremarkable encounter, a, a, a routine police visit to a home. Now, Sean, this is sort of a very common story in the interactions between African-Americans and police, correct? Well, sure. I mean, we've seen most recently uh, these uh, narratives of specifically white women calling the police Mm -hmm. on black people doing the most mundane things, whether they're barbecuing in Oakland, a woman uh, campaigning in Oregon, a family uh, eating at a Subway restaurant in South Georgia, and uh, very several of these uh, these scenarios where the police are called, and thank God no one was injured, no one got hurt. But the what what this story that we're talking about, the story of of Kevin Cooper, points out how deadly serious it is mm-hmm. when you call law enforcement and involving uh, black people. Um, it's a totally different scenario uh, than you know when the white 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 people's encounters with law enforcement is 180 degrees different than black people's encounter with law True. enforcement and i don't think mm-hmm. a lot of white people necessarily understand that well tell you, you know it is true that you know there is a certain sense of fear when uh, people you talk to you've interviewed out Absolutely. out in Baltimore of calling police in any situation. Absolutely. When I, I will give you an example of how black women are often affected by law enforcement. Back in 2015, there was a teenage girl at a pool party who was wrestled to the ground and had a knee placed in her back because she wasn't moving away from the premises fast enough. So a lot of times we talk about young black men and their interactions with law enforcement, mm-hmm. but this also deeply affects black women. And in relation to women interacting with the law enforcement, 
It does often happen, though, in relation to their children, especially their male children. Sean, why do you think it is that many of these routine encounters, police escalate them with African-American, you know, people in Baltimore and beyond. What, what What is it in the minds of law enforcement that says, I'm going to escalate? Because this Kevin Cooper is a perfect example of police escalating a situation that was not fraught at the moment. Well, I mean, I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, first one, the overarching one is the dehumanization of black people. Um, you know, law enforcement is just as, uh, you know, susceptible to that perception of mm-hmm. black people in our society, in American society, as everybody else, number one. Uh, but I think more specifically when it comes down to law enforcement, um, you know, we talk about training a lot. But the question that I always have is it goes beyond training and goes back to who are you recruiting? Who are you bringing into the police department? Mm-hmm. Where are they coming from? Um, um, if you don't have an understanding or an expo- or uh, had, had little or no exposure to black culture and black people, um, it, 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 it's difficult for you to, you know, see us as uh, in an authentic way. And therefore, I think it gives you more license, for lack of a better term, to treat us callously or in an inhumane way. And Tay, you know, you were talking about uh, Greta Carter and the situation where, you know, that uh, an African-American person in Baltimore can pick up the phone and call police and be in need and something horrible can happen. Absolutely. Um, In the case of Greta Carter, she called for help because her son was going through a depressive episode. So she called the police officer over to help her calm him down. And instead, she ended up watching her son murdered before her eyes. So very often, family members are afraid to call police officers for help because they're worried they will be the ones who are victimized. And I just want to mention, um, black women have interactions with law enforcement that are also deeply humiliating and painful. Sharnice Corley, back in 2017, was strip searched on Mm. the side of a road by a gas station in public, in full view of the road, by multiple officers. So very often, black women's interaction with law enforcement is also painful and humiliating. We just don't hear about it as often. And Sean, there is, you know, you could look at a more treacherous motive for treating black women the way that criminal justice does, because, you know, there is some sense of destabilizing a community by making it difficult for women to interact with the criminal justice system. Do you think that's a legitimate point? Ivan Potts, uh, the young man who was incarcerated for close to three years, I guess, um, unjustly, he was a victim of the Gun Trace Task Force. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he said to us was that um, in his mind, and I think in the minds of a a large swath of, of, of Baltimore residents, the police are in the business of instability and causing mm-hmm. chaos and sowing dissension and, and upheaval to keep it, he said something to the effect of keep, keeping the pot stirred up. Um, and I think that's a really, really accurate statement. And that's really interesting because when we talked, we were talking just a week ago about this idea that uh, the U.S. separating children from their families in the immigration debate at the border has become a huge you know, sort of clarion call for, for liberals who say that's not what we are. But you and I just discussed that that's, that's exactly, exactly who we are. That's exactly what America is um, from the moment that the, for, from the first moments really of this country. Um, 
the United States or what would become the United States, the people who landed here, began the, the, the systematic destabilization of the indigenous people, indigenous populations here. Once they brought African slaves here, uh, one of the first things they began to do is separate children from their mothers, children from their families, separate families, break up families. I mean, that has been, that has been the American way for hundreds of years, for centuries. So to suggest somehow that separating children from their mothers at the border who are trying to come to the United States is not the American way. It is exactly, it is exactly the American way. Thank you, Sean. Coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation, the first story of our series, Hidden Victims, the death of Kevin Cooper, as told by his mother, Greta Carter Willis. In this country, we know the bar is unusually low for police to shoot a suspect. In fact, many of the most controversial shootings that have happened here occurred during routine traffic stops or otherwise unremarkable encounters. But this story of a tragic police shooting we are about to tell didn't start on a street or in a Baltimore back alley. Instead, it unfolded inside the home of Greta Carter Willett. The entire ordeal took place in the kitchen of her Southwest Baltimore row home. Which is where our story begins. Greta is a longtime employee of the State Department of Corrections and a lifelong Baltimore resident. Sitting in her kitchen, she talks about her son, Kevin. Oh my gosh, Kevin was, he was awesome. He was a son, he was a friend, he was an uncle, he was a student. Um, he had, you know, lots of friends and he really enjoyed sports. Football was one of his greatest games, he played football. And during the football, he won all kinds of trophies and medals. He played for the Gwynn Falls League, Little League, through Gwynn Falls. He was just 14 years old, suffering from depression, when she called police. A decision that led to a sequence of events that changed her life forever. So we lost all three of our boys in a very horrific car accident. So our household went from this happy household full of people Kevin with his older brother, my daughter had just went into the military, that it was just Kevin and I. Kevin was depressive because of the so many losses. One day, you you know, you have um, your brother, your cousins, and your sister, and you know, everyone in the household too. Now has turned into, it's just him and I. So he was very, very um, depressive at that time. On the day of August the 12th of 2006, Kevin, during the holidays and different episodes as he, you know, thought about his family members, he would begin to cry and have little outbursts. So he was having a little emotional breakdown that morning. And I'm very active in the community. So I called 911 to have an officer come just to have a conversation with Kevin. When police first arrived, 
things seemed normal. The officer was taking a report after talking with Kevin. And the two officers arrived. The one officer, he said that the call was abated, and it was meaning that the call was over, all was done, and he was leaving. The other officer said he was staying to receive, to get my information. So as you can see, our home doesn't have a back door. The exit to our home is down in the basement. So Kevin, when the two officers arrived, he was setting out in the yard. And he was setting down on the ground, and the officers spoke to him, and they spoke with me. And the one left, and the other officer said he needed more information. Kevin got up from the ground, and he walked into the basement from out of the yard where the officer and I was standing by the back door. And he was mumbling. And the officer quickly went from asking me questions to zeroing in on Kevin. He walked up the basement steps. He followed Kevin on our first level, and he followed him upstairs on the second level. The entire time, my daughter's in the military fighting for our country. I was in care of her young baby. She was only 10 months old, so I had the baby in one arm, and I still had my phone in my other hand. So I followed the officer, and I'm asking him constantly, why are you still speaking to my son? You should be having a conversation with me, not my son. So the officer followed Kevin upstairs and he's bickering back and forth, you know. Sounds like, sir, you're supposed to be talking to me, not to my son. He's a child. So he continued to have this back and forth jogger with Kevin. Um, that Kevin wasn't tough, that he was tough, that the officer was tough. And he was having this back and forth and I'm still asking him, please, you know, the um, situation has calmed down. There's nothing going on, so you can exit and leave our home. Kevin came down the steps. Again, the front door is behind us, so I asked him to leave. He still continued to follow Kevin. Kevin walked into the kitchen and he picked up this plastic dustpan. And it's a little dustpan that you get from the dollar store that has the plastic at the bottom and this little plastic handle that you get from the dollar store. And he picked up that little dustpan. And when Kevin picked up the dustpan, the officer maced him and then he shot him. So in her kitchen, her son is mortally wounded. I think I was more in shock. I started screaming as to why are you shooting my son? You know, you just shot my son. There was no words exchanged. He didn't say, you know, put down the dustpan. He just maced him and he shot him. But at that critical moment, police did something even worse. 
Not only did they not offer her son treatment in the minutes after he was shot. But they forced her to come to homicide to give a statement assuring her that her son was still alive. Then he got on his radio and he started to call a signal 13. I started screaming, why are you calling a signal 13? Because you are the shooter. A signal 13 means that you're in distress. The house was filled with so many officers. They were just coming from all over. Um, as they came in, they ran through the house. They were looking for a shooter. They were saying, where's the shooter? Where's the shooter? And I'm screaming, please get my son some help. So as he was, you know, blinded by the mace, his head was going back and then he shot him. So he was still trying to recoup from the mace. The officers ran through the house. They started closing the windows. They instructed me that I needed to get out of the house. So I went out, they escorted me outside and I set out in the sidewalk on the gutter. The ambulance wasn't coming to get Kevin. The ambulance was getting the officer. The first ambulance, the officer came in the house. He went back outside and then he sat down on the curbside. And as he sat on the curbside, the ambulance started tending to the officer. And Kevin was still inside the house. And I'm screaming, how are you tending to this officer? They was like, miss, please calm down, calm down. And I couldn't calm down because I knew my son was wounded inside of the house. I didn't know where he was shot. I just knew that he was wounded and he needed help. And I was just frantic. I was screaming and screaming. But there was detectives. I could see them coming with these um, suit jackets on, so I knew that they were detectives. And they said that I wanted to go to the hospital with Kevin. They said I couldn't go to the hospital. I had to go with them to make a statement. It was only after an officer drove her to the hospital did she realize the truth. They kept telling me that he was fine, he was okay, he was talking, that all was well. They said I couldn't use the phone, I couldn't call anyone, um, I needed to make a statement, and I gave them a statement. And at the end, they said that Kevin would be under arrest. And I kept saying, why is he under arrest? He didn't do anything. They said, your son is fine, he has charges, and we're gonna take you to the hospital. So they instructed the officer to drive me to St. Agnes Hospital. When I arrived at the hospital, the first person I saw, I saw my pastor and I saw my neighbor. And as they were staring at me when we got out of the car, and the way they were looking at me, I just passed out. When I came to, they were telling me that Kevin never made it. And for her, it was a critical injustice that compounded the unthinkable act in her kitchen. They knew he was deceased, that the bullet had burst his heart, but you already knew that he was deceased. They had, he had already died. So, at that time, the doctor talked to me and he said that he didn't have a chance, that it, it, it had went and it, and it burst his heart and he died on the scene. 
And so Carter entered the no-man's land that is unique to those whose loved ones die at the hands of police. It is a world of incalculable loss, but also isolation. Because she was shunned, not only by police, but the political establishment too. By two or, I think it was around two or three o'clock that afternoon, Baltimore City Police Department had come together and did a press conference. And the press conference, they said that the officer was justified. How could you justify homicide that you never even did an investigation? A homicide that occurred that morning, how could you justify the officer's actions? I would never understand that, never understand that. I wrote letters to every political person. It, we were in the middle of election year. Nobody wanted to touch the case. It was like this hush-hush, sweep-under-the-rug conversation. Nobody wanted to talk to me or my family. And so she entered a realm of social isolation prescribed by a society that sanctions police violence above all else. And enforces the rights of police to kill without compunction or consequence. But she fought back on behalf of her son and others. It has truly been a devastating experience. It has turned my family's world upside down for one minute, you know, you're right side up and the next minute your whole world just goes toppling upside down not knowing where to go who to get help from who to talk to because it's like everybody is don't want to have a conversation from the mayor's office to anybody from the state's attorney's office no one ever called to apologize for taking my son's life just unjustly just just like a, a bag of trash that you just swept him under the rug. So I refuse to let this city just sweep my son's death under the rug. I've been his voice, a voice that has been crying out from the grave all these years for the truth to be told that he had no chance. The officer was not in any type of danger he was in no harm for him to take Kevin's life. Until one day, she encountered the officer who shot her son. And in that moment, she forgave him. September the 20th of 2017, I was at the Royal Farms down on Washington Boulevard. After the officer, Roderick Mitter, took Kevin's life, he was moved from the Southwest District Police Station. On that day, which he may never admit publicly. But in our private moment in the store, in that encounter, he realized in his heart that he did something that was not right. So as I said to him, I forgive you because I don't want God mm. My heart has been so heavy all these years. And in order for me to have a peace in my heart, I forgave him for taking my son's life. And that's been the hardest piece because that's all I wanted from the beginning, to admit that you did something wrong. 
The, the police department, the city of Baltimore has done an injustice to our family. An injustice to admit that you took my son's life unjustly. That's what I've always wanted. Because it's not, my son is gone. It's to help other families. To this injustice will not be done to other families. At first, he didn't speak. He wouldn't talk. He just put his head down. I extended my arms out and I hugged him. I extended my arms to him. I embraced him because the heavy burden that has been on my shoulders. And I know he has been carrying a burden as well. He said to me that every time he closes his eyes, he sees my son. He sees my son. That's why I embraced him, to let him know as Kevin's mother, you took my son's life unjustly in front of me. My heart is heavy. I forgive you, but God, you have to forgive yourself. And the only way to do that is through whomever you believe in. That's why I embraced him. Um, did he embrace you back? I mean, how did he react? It was very emotional. He embraced me back, and then he left quickly. He left very quickly. But Carter still suffers just not in silence. And she refuses to accept the judgment of a society that her son's death was justified. The pain of a mother who cannot and will not forget. Had they listened to us back in 2006, that would prevent a lot of things that's taking place now. You have so many families whose life has been taken and the police department has covered it up. Time after time after time, they have covered it up, swept it under the rug because they feel that our children's lives doesn't matter, but they do matter because they have families that love them. They have parents, they have homes, they have sisters and brothers. They, have, they were part of a community that loves them and it's not their place to take our children's life unjustly and to cover it up and try to sweep our children's life under the rug like they did not matter, and they do matter. What did I do? Thank you for joining us for the first part of our series, Hidden Victims, an exploration of how women of color suffer at the hands of law enforcement. We'd like to thank our guest, Greta Carter-Willis. Please subscribe to our podcast or contact us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Stephen Janis, Sean Yost, and myself for Ace Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. Be sure to join us for our next installment of the series Hidden Victims. And thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. It's